You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for joining us here today. My name is Joshua Tucker. I'm the director of the Jordan Center for the Advanced Study of Russia at New York University. And this is our first event, actually, for the Jordan Center that we've ever held in Washington, DC, outside of New York. But it's also the first event, and the first of what we hope will be many in the years to come, that's jointly co-sponsored by the Jordan Center for the Advanced Study of Russia at NYU and the United States Institute of Peace here in Washington, DC, who are obviously our hosts here today. I want to thank all of you who are joining us on video. I want to thank those of you who braved the Canadian wild wildfires to make it here in person today in DC. Uh, I'm heading back to New York afterwards, so I hear it's, um, it's even more, uh, more going on there. But it's a, it's a great pleasure to have all of you here today to join us for what I think will be a, an incredibly important conversation. And I personally, for one, am considering myself unbelievably fortunate to be able to share the stage with our distinguished panelists. Uh, the plan for today is that we have, I've asked each of the panelists to prepare about five to seven minutes of opening remarks. I will then ask them some follow-on questions based on their remarks, and then we'll hopefully have the last 15 or 20 minutes to open it up to questions from the audience. Those of you who are watching online, you can also ask questions as well. They will be hand-delivered to me on stage, is my understanding, but uh, we're all very much looking forward to the discussion here today. I'm going to introduce each of our speakers in turn in an entrance of speed before uh, their opening remarks. There are you know, pages and pages. I could spend the whole hour speaking of the accolades of our panelists. I'm going to keep it really brief. You know where you can find out more about them. So we're going to start off uh, to the left with my colleague, Dr. Yevgenia Albats, who is a Russian investigative journalist, a political scientist, author, and a radio host. She has been the political editor and then editor-in-chief and CEO of The New Times, a Moscow-based Russian-language independent political weekly since 2007, which I'm sure most of you here in this room know. Uh, she has spent, I'm very pleased and honored to let you know that the final part is she spent the past year as the first distinguished journalist in residence that we've ever had at the NYU Jordan Center for the Advanced Study of Russia. Zhenya? Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And it's a great pleasure to be in such a uh, respectable institutions, such a great building. So many times I passed by and I always wanted to come in. So thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. Before I say anything else, I want to say that, as I say each time, I talk in any audience about anything uh, related uh, uh, to Russia and this horrible war that uh, Putin and Russian army is uh, conducting in Ukraine, that I'm sorry for what Putin and his army is doing in Ukraine. I am responsible for this, uh, if for nothing else, uh, but because I was among you know, these active members of the Russian opposition, I ran an opposition magazine, I ran an opposition you know, political show. However, we failed and we allowed Putin, and because of our failure, uh, this disaster uh, happened. So once again, I bear my responsibility for that even though I've never, of course, you know, voted for Putin and was in a position to Putin from day one. Uh, the title of this panel, The Impact of uh, the War in Ukraine on Russian Civil Society. Uh, but Russian society ceased to exist. One million or so, according to the Secretary of State Blinken, left Russia and scattered over countries and continents. Uh, these are political activists and journalists, uh, first and foremost, 
who over the last few years, time and again, went out on the streets in protests against Putin and his fascist regime. They were beaten, arrested, fined, and jailed. Those who stayed are in jail now. All my friends, each and every one of my friends, is in prison as we speak. Alexei Navalny, the leader of the Russian opposition, sentenced to nine years in maximum security prison, and he's expecting another trial in 12 days. Most likely, he's going to get another 30 years in jail. I was at his previous court hearings conducted in his, inside the penal colony, uh, number six. His last remarks were devoted to the brutal war in Ukraine and his condemnation of Putin and his generals for this evil war. My other friend, Michael Krieger, Mikhail Krieger, a native of Dnipro, Ukraine, was sentenced to seven years in the labor camp. He made his last remarks in, uh, when he was sentenced in Ukrainian in Moscow. My another close friend, Ilya Yashin, was sentenced to eight years and six months for a video piece on atrocities committed by the Russian army in Bucha. Answering a question on the state of Russian society from the Canadian Globe and Mail uh, from the Moscow jail, Yashin wrote, quote, people are getting jailed for likes on social media, for private conversations, for having the colors of the Ukrainian flag in elements of their clothing. A man was sentenced to two years in jail for the fact that his daughter made an anti-war drawing in a school class. Uh, there had been a full-blown political dictatorship established in Russia, and the society is paralyzed with fear. You can, of course, judge my fellow Russians, right, Yashin, for being afraid of the maniac in power, whose hands are soaked in the blood of tens of thousands of victims. But before you judge the Russians, ask yourself, wouldn't you be afraid? End of quote. And one more quote. Germany used to be ruled by absolute evil that was destroying people on an industrial scale and unleashed the most horrible things in human history. But the Germans were able to make it out of this darkness and created an amazing society based on humanism, justice, and progress. We are not nation of thieves and killers. We're a nation that's been taken hostage by thieves and killers. End of quote. Yesterday, just yesterday, an artist, Bogdan Ziza, was sentenced to 15 years in prison for dousing the, uh, dousing the official building with blue and yellow paint, which are colors of the Ukrainian flag, of course. Since March 5th, 2022, when repressive laws were passed by the State Duma, which prohibited any coverage of the war, and the words war and invasion were prohibited as well, and I was sentenced for that, for using these words, uh, 19,718 people have been detained since February 24 for anti-war uh, stances. 584 individuals are charged with a criminal offense for the anti-war activity. 6,839 individuals are charged with spreading disinformation about the Russian army. Four cases are mine personally. Uh, and the fifth uh, uh, case I got just two days ago uh, in mail. 262 individuals, organizations, and associations were recognized by the Russian Justice Department as foreign agents, of which I am one of them. Uh, and I was proclaimed, as it's written on the Minister of Justice website, I'm a foreign agent working on behalf of Ukraine. So uh, it was uh, August 5th, 2022. Today, two people were detained at, in St. Petersburg. They were standing near the military draft point with a poster, 
uh, quote, do not go to kill, do not go to die. So I will stop here and we'll be happy to answer your questions. Thank you very much, Jenya. Uh, we'll turn next to uh, Dr. Timothy Fry, who is the Marshall D. Shulman Professor of Post-Soviet Foreign Policy at Columbia University. His most recent book is Weak Strongmen, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. Rather than treating Russian politics as an extension of Vladimir Putin's worldview or Russia's unique history, Weak Strongman emphasizes Russia's similarities to other autocracies and highlights the difficult trade-offs that confront the Kremlin on issues from election fraud and repression to propaganda and foreign policy. He's currently serving uh, this semester here in Washington, D.C. as the Library of Congress Chair in U.S.-Russia Relations. Tim? Thank you very much, Josh. Thank you, everyone, for coming. And uh, uh, I've known Evgenia for a long time, and I always know that she's a very difficult act to follow. Mm -hmm. So I will do my best. Um, uh, I want to talk uh, a little bit about what's changed and what hasn't in Russian public opinion and civil society since the start of the war. Um, the title of the panel focuses on civil society and the war, but I think it's really important to understand that Russian civil society has been facing a slow death uh, for, well, going on at least 10, 12 years, depending on how one wants to count it. So as we see Russian civil society, and by this I mean independent groups, autonomous from the state, which have largely ceased to exist on any scale in Russia, particularly after the uh, invasion. Um, but we have to remember that this you know, has been going on for um, uh, you know, for at least since 2014 is a, good, is a good place to start. Russia's never been a very much of a high trust society, but if you look at generalized social trust, uh, around 2017, 2018, we see sharp drops in levels of how much people trust each other, which is a crucial element of civil society. Um, so we want to remember that the, the death of, or the demise of Russian civil society um, did not begin with the war. It's been going on for some time. Uh, if we also look at public attitudes towards Ukraine, um, so uh, we all know that the Russian populace across all strata were very supportive of the annexation of Ukraine. It caused a big uh, rally around the flag, in fact, in support of Vladimir Putin. But when we look at the public opinion data more closely, um, we also have to bear in mind that the vast majority of Russians, prior to the invasion of Ukraine, were willing to accept Ukraine as a sovereign state. Levada Center repeatedly uh, over the years has asked Russians, what would their preferred relationship be like with Ukraine? Um, and less than 20% each time this question has been asked said that unification with Ukraine was their preferred response. Most Russians were perfectly happy with the sovereign Ukraine. Perhaps they wanted better relations. Perhaps they wanted visa-free travel. But the recognition of Ukraine as a state was something that most, most uh, Russians had come to accept. Also, if we look at public opinion toward the introduction of troops into the Donbass, uh, into the, the war of 20, uh, after the annexation of Crimea, most Russians were against this um, uh, by only 20, 25%, depending on the timing of the question, were Russians willing to say, yes, it's a good idea. We want to see Russian troops actively. Um, we all know they were there, but uh, that the Russians, for the Russian government to actively introduce Russian troops into the Donbass, this was a very unpopular policy um, uh, among Russians. So what happened after the war, where we see you know, big increases in uh, support for Putin and consi majorities consistently in support 
support of the activities of the Russian army uh, in Ukraine. Well, one thing we're seeing is a rally around the flag effect, which is something that we see um, in lots of countries. And it's likely to last a lot longer in Russia, given the dominant control that the Russian government has over, uh, over the media. But again, once we peel back the public opinion data, the picture is not quite so clear. Um, if you ask Russians whether or not they would like to continue the war or to start negotiations, it's about split 50-50. Uh, and um, if you ask Russians whether or not the um, uh, uh, budgetary money should be spent on the military or toward social programs, again, it's very much split between those two groups. And if we look across the range of public opinion polling, focus groups, and other kinds of research that's been done, generally, People recognize about a third of Russians are kind of hardcore, enthusiastic supporters of uh, the intervention in Ukraine. Maybe 10 or 15 percent, many of the people that Jenya was, was talking about, are hardcore opponents of the war. But for most Russians, this is not an issue that is very high priority for them. And most of them are willing to go along with whatever the Kremlin does. Right. Now, the problem is Russia is an autocracy. right? So even if there was a large majority against this war, in the current time, there's no political vehicle uh, to mobilize, to, to constrain the Kremlin, to be able to take actions that would be costly for the Kremlin in order to get them to change course. And that's really the problem uh, that we see in a society in which civil society is so weak. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for teeing all of that off. Um, our final uh, panelist today is Angela Stent, uh, who is Dr. Angela Stent, who is Professor Emerita of Government and Foreign Service at Georgetown University, a senior advisor to the U.S. Institute of Peace here, and a senior non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. She served in the Department of State's Office of Policy Planning and as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia. Her latest book is Putin's World, Russia Against the West and the Rest, the updated version of which was published this February. Angela? Thank you very much. Um, and maybe um, I'll just follow on from what you were saying. So I was at the Leonard Mary conference in Tallinn a few weeks ago, and they had a very interesting panel with Russian opposition figures. Some of them are still living in Russia and some of them aren't. Uh, but they were really bemoaning the passivity of the population who have remained there. And that, you know, if Putin said, if Putin stood up tomorrow and said, I made a mistake, you know, let's pull all our troops out and let's give everything back to Ukraine, then they'd agree with that too. I mean, that may be an exaggeration, but they really, um, <laughs> and then there was also, uh, <clears throat> and maybe we can get into this more maybe, there was also discussion about how much one can believe, for instance, the Levada polling. Uh, and there were very strong views on either side of that, because there was an individual from that organization there, obviously defending what they were doing. So, um, so I was going to cover three points today. I was going to talk a little bit about uh, the emigration and what that might mean for the future, um, then the impact of the war and on the elites, and then something about the impact of the war um, on, the, on the general population. So as we've heard from Genia, a million uh, roughly Russians have left uh, since the war began. Um, many of them because they actively opposed the war, some of them because they wanted to avoid conscription, uh, even if their political views aren't that, that strong. But many of these, they're young, they're the brightest, the most talented um, Russians, they have a lot of technical skills and things like that. Um, and so, um, uh, and, then there, and then there are some who have 
gone back since they've left, but, but most of them are, are still outside of the country. Um, so that leaves behind mainly people who support the war, or they're indifferent or passive, um, or they just cannot leave uh, for different reasons. Um, but this also means that there's a real deficit in human capital looming um, over Russia uh, if these people continue to stay outside of Russia, and obviously it's going to depend on what happens uh, in the next few years. Um, if things don't improve in the next decade, if there isn't a new government, if Russia doesn't change, then probably most of these people will not return. Um, this is the largest emigration since the Russian Revolution uh, in 1917, and of course most of those people uh, didn't return uh, for obvious reasons, but you'll really have then a split again which has historically happened before, between a large number of very talented Russians who are living outside the country and then uh, those who uh, remain there. Um, now, um, let me say just a word about how the war has impacted the elites in Russia, because I think some of us were surprised outsiders at least in the beginning when we thought about the kind of westernized, globalized elites who own homes in Europe, the United States, and bank accounts there too, the kind of people that we would meet at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum every year uh, and who really enjoyed all the contacts they had with the West. And I think a number of, uh, of us were surprised that there wasn't more opposition, that most of these elites have stayed there. I think we understand that for some people they can't leave. They've just been told that they cannot leave. Um, uh, but for many of these people, they made a bargain with Putin when he came to power, that they would stay out of politics as long as they could accumulate money, you know, send their kids to school in different Western capitals um, and enjoy, again, the, their villas um, in the south of France. And I think none of them realized that this is what would happen to the bargain, that this is, that this is how it would end in a sense. And yet most of them have now ad adapted to it, they've accepted to it, um, and those that were you know, in the private sector have understood also that they now have to work, and many of them are, uh, in a much more nationalized economy. Uh, we also think of the head of the central bank, Elvira Nabiulina, who has managed to steer the economy pretty well given um, uh, all of the sanctions. Um, and I think one of the great mistakes of uh, policymakers in this country and to some extent in Europe was to think that if they imposed all these sanctions on individuals uh, at the beginning of this war, that these individuals in Russia would kind of get together and say, we can't stand this, we have to get rid of this government, this is not how the system works in Russia, and this, this is not uh, the impact that it's had. Now, are there splits in the elites? And I'm sure there are. Uh, it's you know, a little obscure, we don't quite know how to gauge them, uh, we don't have much insight into it, but even if there are splits, for the moment those elites um, have in a sense buckled down and they've understood that they have no choice uh, but to support the war. Um, as we've heard from Janier, obviously the system in Russia has become much more repressive since the war began. Um, uh, you know, people are jailed at the, for the slightest hint um, of opposition. Um, and, uh, and, and what we've had a return to some of the uglier things that remind us even of the Stalinist past, the denunciations, the things that Janier was talking about with the girl in school drawing the picture and the teacher then uh, reporting her to the authorities. Um, and we've also had a, much, a return of militarism in terms of education. Uh, you know, now children in elementary school um, are uh, doing military drills 
To some extent, as they did in the Soviet times, people thought um, that that had gone away. Um, the other thing is that Putin, I think, has used these 15 months, and in my opinion, he's consolidated his power in these 15 months. There are no real uh, restraints um, on his power, uh, as far as, as many of us can see. And he's used it to consolidate a new Russian national identity, which is sort of the old Russian and even Soviet national identity. Uh, but it's definitely convincing the Russian people uh, that uh, you know, Russia is a great power. It needs to be respected. It needs to be feared. Um, it espouses conservative Christian values. And it's fully sovereign. And it has the right in perpetuity to dominate its less sovereign neighbors. Um, and uh, I think that was clear also from what we heard from my, from my other colleagues here. Uh, again, there are elements of czarist ideology in this, elements of Soviet um, ideology. And then there's, I think, an extra dose of xenophobia, uh, uh, militarism, and real hatred of the West. Uh, people are being you know, told that the West started this war, that the West is against them. And unfortunately, the fact that kind of Russians have been quote unquote canceled for different reasons in different parts of the West, I think has fed in to this concern, uh, this belief among many Russians that in fact uh, the West is, is out to get them. Um, so um, I think the, you know, the, this has had a corrosive impact on society. Um, uh, and um, you know, it's if, if things were to change for the better, um, then I think some of this can be reversed. If the current system remains uh, for a decade or longer and Russians remain isolated, which they, I mean, they're increasingly isolated and unable to, or unwilling uh, to, to go abroad, but unable largely, um, then I think it will take much longer to kind of revive, if you like, the, the kind of critical thinking facilities that I think would be needed if there is to be a better system in Russia. Um, and so a lot of that, of course, will depend on the outcome of the war and how long Putin stays in power. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Angela. And thanks to all the panelists for those opening remarks. Um, you know, I, I want to come back to you with, I think there's two big picture questions to stay on the theme of the, of the, uh, of the panel of the impact of the war in Ukraine on Russian civil society. There's lots of different directions that we can take this in here. But I have what I would call a kind of medium term question and a long term question that I'm interested in all of your, all of your thoughts on it, though, though in particular ways. So, the medium term question, and I'm going to push you a little bit beyond what is to think about what could be and then what will be. So in terms of what could be, or this is the medium term question, what would it take for Russian civil society to break with Putin? So here we are, we are having this discussion and an undercurrent of this discussion, whether it's about passivity, you know, complaining about passivity among immigrants, whether it's about public opinion data, is that, you know, Tim, you said 15%, you know, 20% might be against him. That doesn't mean 80% is for everything, but it's still a fairly low number there. Um, what would have to happen in order for it, in order for Russian civil society to turn decisively against Putin. And I want to sidestep the issue. I mean, I, inherent in this, and maybe we, have to, maybe we have to address it, is the extent to which, as Angela mentioned, this debate that was going on previously, and Jenny, you and I were talking about this the other night, how much you know, we can trust public opinion data in a climate of repression. We've thought about this a long time in many different countries. But what kind of events would have to take place in order for there to be a decisive break with Putin? And is it something? 
in the war, like for, for example, the loss of Crimea, or is it something in the context of Russian domestic politics or splits in the elites or something like that? So I was thinking to start with, you know, maybe Tim, you could address this mm -hmm. from lessons from the public opinion data that you've looked at, and then we can go to Zhenya to talk about what you think from all of your on-the-ground reporting and to everyone who you've talked to about this, as well as your contacts with the Russian opposition. So maybe we'll start there. So great. So one of the uh, interesting things about Russia is for a long time, you could do really good public opinion polling there. And really remarkable because there are very few autocracies like that. Um, since the war began, it's become much more complicated. Um, I've written about this, lots of people have written about this, but I'll just say this, that we know the direction of the bias, right? So uh, if 50% of Russians are willing to say that they would prefer negotiations to begin rather than uh, to continue the war, I think that does tell you something. Right? So we can you know, look at the numbers, recognizing that there's a bias and then, um, uh, and then adjust. Now, more broadly, um, you know, Russia is too well-educated, it's too wealthy, it's too urban, it's too you know, ethnically uh, homogeneous to be as uh, autocratic as it is, to have a civil society that is so weak. This is a very unusual setting. I mean, if we look at Latin American countries and look at their societies, you know, they're at least as unequal. Um, their education levels are lower. Many of them are, are poorer, but many of them are much more democratic with much more robust uh, civil society. So I'm not sure that there's anything inherent um, in Russia or Russians in the difficulty of building civil society. The problem is there's a repressive apparatus that makes that impossible. Uh, at least for the moment. So I think for this, for civil society really to break with Putin, uh, uh, you know, the outcome of the war obviously plays a role here. Um, the state of the economy plays a role for a long time. That's been uh, an important determinant of how Russians um, uh, perceive uh, the state. But the big issue is uh, how the repressive apparatus uh, holds together. And if they will continue to repress at, at, at this rate, you know, it makes it very difficult for civil society uh, uh, to organize. Now, one more point. If it's more difficult for us to read uh, a Russian society, it's also more difficult for the Kremlin uh, to read civil society. If people are holding their true views about the war or about uh, Putin um, uh, to themselves, uh, uh, you know, it's also more difficult for the Kremlin to predict how people will respond given the chance. Uh, but Jania knows more about the, the repressive apparatus, so she might be able to shed some light on, uh, on that. So. Yeah, Jania, if you can sort of, you know, I, what, what I'm really interested in here is like, you know, this, this uh, frustration the emigrate the community has with the passivity of Russian civil society. From your talking with people who are still in Russia, what is your sense of what it would take to move the needle on that? What is it that people, what is it that is keeping people in line? Is it simply the repressive apparatus? And if so, what could make people uh, more willing to change their attitudes even in the, you know, so Tim has given us one answer, if the repressive apparatus falls apart, but even in the face of the repressive apparatus, are there developments that we could imagine domestically within Russia with the economy or with the war that would lead people to, to become more more opposed and more actively opposed. You know, I'm a little bit surprised, you know, the, uh, Angela said about, you know, this talk about the passivity of the Russian society. As I said, 20,000 people in, this, in the matter of 15 months were detained 
20,000 people across the country were detained for their anti-war activities. It, it, that's what you know, we know, that's what's happening in the authoritarian regimes, that you don't need to put in jails millions. It's enough to put you know, one or two in each city, and then the entire city shut down. It's not just happened to Russia. It happened in many countries across the globe. It happened in Nazi Germany. It happened, you know, in a, uh, you know, post-war uh, European countries, and etc., etc., etc. So I wouldn't talk about the Russian passivity because we don't know this. What we know for sure that the response rate for all these polls are five, is five percent. You would tell me, oh, you know, in the United States it's not that bad. In fact, you know, I checked, twenty percent. Your usual response rate here is twenty percent. So five percent. It's not, 5%, it means that uh, only five out of 100 people uh, dare to answer questions. I talk to people in Moscow on a daily basis. My family is there, you know, my friends are there, and etc. People are afraid. People are really afraid because each time anyone is trying to open his or her or their mouth, it, he uh, or she or they immediately uh, gets a uh, house arrest. The reason I left not be, be, was very simple because uh, we, I knew that after my uh, four sentences uh, for, you know, for uh, spreading disinformation about the Russian army and fines at the amount of 13,000 rubles, next was not just, not just jail, but they were going to uh, uh, take away all my electronics and first put me under house arrest. So it would preclude me from any work. So to cut a long story short, you know, people, it's one thing that people are afraid because everyone knows somebody who is in jail. But the second thing, don't forget, this is the country which lost millions and millions to Gulag. There is something that here, and every, in almost each and every family, there is somebody who perished in Gulag. There is somebody who was arrested. In uh, oh, many of us, we grew up in the families where parents were afraid to tell us that somebody was uh, pronounced enemy of the people during the Stalin's year. My grandpa was shot by the firing squad in, uh, on November 1st, 1937, but in my family they didn't talk about that. It was like, you know, it was, there was silence about that because it's something that was a bad mark on people's papers, you know, through decades. Now, I don't, as I said, there is no civil society. There is no society. It's absolutely dispersed. Uh, population now, you know, people, you know, it's, you know, uh, there was a great book by Hans Falada uh, about Nazi Germany. Everyone, uh, everyone dies uh, uh, alone. So it is, you know, exactly this type of situation when everybody is afraid. So, uh, yes, I do think that uh, the, 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 uh, the regime is going to fail because of, the, uh, because of the mutiny or split of the elites, as we say, uh, in the upper echelons of power. Uh, somebody is going to slit Putin's throat or you know, whatever else is going to happen to him. Uh, and you know, I pray to God that somebody will have enough courage to do that. So, uh, but the point is that uh, I don't think that this will go for long because 
Putin's closest entourage. They lost billions and billions of dollars. They lost access to their uh, property outside the United, uh, outside uh, Russia. Many of them, they had property in Europe and still have property in France and England, in Italy, vineyards in Italy, and etc. You know, some of them still have you know property on Manhattan in the United States or in, uh, in the outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia, and so it goes. These people do want to get back their life. They never intended to live in a golden cage as they now live in Russia. They uh, got accustomed to make money inside Russia and to spend uh, and to have luxury life outside Russia, uh, to have all their yachts, villas, and etc. cetera. Uh, finally, they have their children and their grandchildren who used to go to the boarding schools in Great Britain and Switzerland and the United States and their children who were going to universities, Yale University was famous for that, you know, they, uh, and all of a sudden they had to leave uh, those universities and those boarding schools and return back to Russia. They don't like it. And their wives and their mistresses and the school entourage, they hate the life that they, you know, I speak to, the, to these people you know, when they, you know, when they uh, outside Russia, even when they inside Russia. And uh, they are terrified by what is happening and they don't want this to continue. So to cut a long story short, no, it's not going to be popular mobilization. No, it's not going to be uh, another October, uh, great October socialist revolution. It's going to be an elite split where we'll have, you know, what happened in many regimes of that type in Latin America. There will be, you know, uh, Putin will go, these will another, uh, uh, you know, there will be a junta which is going to replace him precisely because of, you know, low level of trust. So there won't be one person that will be you know uh, several people who will become you know who will become the rulers they will have no legitimacy and that's when our time will come and we will use it much better than we did before Angela just a, an illustration of this right um, many of us ask when as the war was going on where are the soldiers mothers so in the Soviet Afghan war one of the things that led the, uh, Gorbachev to end the war and withdraw the troops were because you had this very active group uh, of mothers um, who were protesting so the difference was obviously Russia is much more repressive today than it was in the late Gorbachev period and so what you've had instead there are there is a soldiers mothers group but it's one that was created essentially by the Kremlin and in fact there was a video that you can go and see of Putin meeting with some of these women and saying well it's good that your sons died you know heroes fighting the war instead of dying of alcoholism right um, the cynicism there and then the other thing that's happening is that the families of the dead soldiers are being given cash payments uh, they're being given new cars and things like that so it's a mixture of the greater repression and then in fact bribing people uh, to somehow believe uh, that you know their sons husbands brothers uh, died uh, in some for some great cause but to me that's really an illustration of what's changed um, given that we know that I mean apparently more than 200,000 um, uh, Russians have either been killed or, or severely wounded and then the other thing that could cause a break would be if there really were if the economy really 
economy were to crash and people you know couldn't go out and buy food anymore and that also hasn't happened because uh, you know Russia has used the period since 2014 to greatly improve its agricultural system so you know there is enough food things are more expensive for some people and there is greater unemployment because um, some factories have had to close assembly lines down because of the lack of spare parts but those two things kind of excessive deaths and then um, economic privation it's just not happening so yeah. it's interesting so the, the sort of taking the three things from the comments there's repression right if repression was to be lessened that's one way it would give people more space for uh, in order to do this. The second is about elites, right? If the elite situation changes, well, that's a reason that masses would break with Putin. And then the third, as you bring up this question of the economy, is important, not because it's something that's easily controllable, but it does suggest that it's a kind of constraint on the war effort, right? That you can't necessarily mobilize everything for the war effort because then you lose the support at home. I wanna ask you a, a, all a second question, but if you can answer a little bit briefer so we can turn to the audience momentarily. But looking farther into the future, right? We've talked about people having left the country. We've talked about these higher levels of repression. We're talking about the, you know, the experiences that are happening now because of the war. Someday Putin will not be in power. Um, do we expect at that point, and let's go with Tim's point about the repression being what's holding people back. Let's imagine, so Putin's, Putin's out of power for whatever reason in some X number of years in the future. Repression comes back to, you know, let's say early Putin levels, right? It doesn't disappear entirely, but it's lower. Does Russian civil society bounce back to where it was? Or is this experience, you know, you could imagine the lesson is, okay, there was the Soviet Union, we had repression, it gradually lessened, then we were in the post-Soviet period, okay, we have a more open society, we don't have to worry about this, you know, the gulag in the back of the head. But now it says, wow, the gulag can come back Right? You have a bunch of people who've left the country, and so you have a different, pop different mix of people who are left behind. Is that something that we expect is going to constrain Russian civil society and the vibrancy of Russian civil society? Or do we think that you know, much after the collapse of communism, we saw a vibrant Russian civil society in the 90s, chaotic but vibrant, um, that it, we, we can expect it to kind of spring back afterwards? And I'll let whoever whoever wants to take for Well, Angela, I'll just start off yeah. by saying, I mean, it depends. If you, it, it depends how long this takes, right? Uh, you know, if it takes 10 years, that's different than if it were to take three years or 20 years. Um, and then I think it would also depend on how many Russians who've left come back, because they certainly have been living in places where there are, is a vibrant civil society, and then how they interact with the Russians um, who stayed in Russia and didn't leave. So I, I would assume civil society will at some point come back. Again, historically in Russia, you have long periods of repression and then you have, you know, dissent, revolution, whatever. Um, but I think a lot of that will depend on, on how long it takes to have a different government in power. Yeah, a couple thoughts. One is um, autocrat, it's very difficult to replace autocrats. Uh, even when autocrats lose wars, they tend to stay in power. Right? Um, However, you know, I looked at the data a little more closely, and the kinds of autocrats that stay in power after wars, they're the Saddam Husseins, the Joseph Stalins, the Muammar Gaddafis, who I have no objective measure for this, but I think we're much more feared uh, uh, by the elite than, than, than President Putin is. Um, so you know, the outcome of the war, I think, 
you know, could play a greater role here than it, did, than it does in some of the comparative cases that we, uh, that we often like uh, to cite. I mean, look, the key thing here is will, it, will civil society be able to, will there be enough space to allow civil societies, uh, organizations to form? Uh, and to uh, uh, not uh, be atomized the way that they, that they are right now. Right now, I think Russian values are, are, are not that unconducive towards building a civil society. The difficult thing is creating organizations, uh, and that takes political space. So, uh, you know, and that would have to come from a government that's much different from the one that is currently in power. I think that's, you know, one thing that we're missing, I feel like that maybe, you know, I'm wrong and correct me if I'm wrong, that in this discussion it is that the current Russia is not uh, your Soviet Union. And the repressive apparatus that existed in the contemporary Russia is not the one that existed back uh, in 1991 or in 1990, uh, prior to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, for, for, for good or for bad, there is a market economy in the country, and uh, the current successor to KGB, but you know, I will use KGB just as easy, uh, it's, it's, it's not this solid body the way it existed uh, back in, 19, even back then. In 1991, uh, some of them, you know, special people in the intelligence, they already was, were involved in some businesses, and they already, you know, when uh, Krujkov, the chairman of the KGB, you know, conducted this attempted coup, you know, many uh, didn't support him because they had other interests. In fact, you know, the middle level of the KGB didn't support because they had uh, business interests. So the same, much more true for the contemporary KGB, for the FSB, and for uh, other agencies. These are basically a conglomerate of different businesses. All of them, or all the majority of them, you know, colonels and generals, they have their own, you know, small businesses on the side, just to not to be, you know, uh, not to be uh, sorry when I will get old, you know, just a little bit, you know, house there, you know, mistress there, etc. So it, there is no this solid, you know, even in the, in, the, in the last years of the Soviet Union, there was much more precisely because all of them, they were dependable upon the state. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't imagine themselves living outside the state, right? So they were gatekeepers. Uh, yes, it's true too that the current guys, you know, they survived through 1991, 1992. They, were, they feared illustration, it never happened. And then they go, made this amazing comeback, which was absolutely in the cards, predictable, and it was clear that it was going to happen. The point is, but still, that when we have different business interests, we have plurality of interests. And the second very important thing is that there is no ideology. Soviet Union had ideology. For good or for bad, you know, my, grand, uh, my father who passed away in 1980, he was a communist. You know, his, you know his, half of his family perished in Gulag, but you know, he was a communist. He was building military-industrial complex. So, uh, you know, there is no ideology whatsoever. There, there is nothing that, and ideology is something that cement, you know, society in this type of the regimes. Nazi Germany, recall, yes, you know, it, it took 12 years to destroy Nazi Germany, but still, you know, there was very powerful ideology with a clear-cut enemy, and that's what cemented the society. There is nothing like that existed, just nothing.
What's the ideology? What's the ideology? Make Russia great again? You know? I, I don't think right, you know. On that note, <laughs> yes. Let's pass. Uh, do we have questions from the to questions from the audience? Yeah, start there, and they'll take. Go ahead. Uh, do we need a mic? Yeah, it's coming. My name is Grigory Vipan. I'm a lawyer with Memorial, which is Russia's oldest human rights group and one of the recipients of the Nobel Peace Prize. I first met Evgeny Albats uh, 18 months ago at the dissolution trial of Memorial at the Russian Supreme Court, where I was sitting as a lawyer in front of the bar and she was in the public gallery covering the trial. Uh, now that we are both here, Evgeny Markovna, I want to ask you, uh, how do you see your mission in exile? I don't know about mission in exile. You know, my life is there in Moscow. My friends are there. Uh, my most important thing, the way I see it, is to support my friends who are sitting in jails and to do my best in order to help them to survive through this ordeal. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, in Russia, I was precluded for, uh, from teaching. You know, uh, high school of economics, I was the first professor fired uh, because of my political views. So, uh, you know, I enjoy teaching here. I like doing this, you know. I learn here a lot, you know. In fact, you know, life in the United States, it's a, it's a learning experience. You learn just by living here. And I think it's all that is very important. I keep doing my show, Absolute Alberts, on YouTube channel, and I keep, I'm going to, to continue doing this. So, uh, but you know, I, I understand nothing about mission. I'm a journalist, you know, so listen. We cover events, and, but yes, I'm going to do my best in order to help my friends who are in jail. I'll turn now to one question from the, from the um, virtual audience here today, picking up Angela on one of the points that you had made here, which is to say, the question is, there's been a recent coverage of the rise of militarization of Russian society and youth. You were talking a bit about the changing curriculum. And this was sort of feeding into my question before about the longer term implications of this. But the question is, how can this be combated to build a strong civil society in Russia after the war and after Russia? So what's the, what's the lasting impact of younger people being harnessed? And we see lots of images of this as well. So Angela, maybe if you want to take first shot at that. Well, I mean, obviously, you have to demilitarize it. The first thing you have to do is to end. I mean, when I see these little children, kin kindergarten age, in the uniforms, carrying weapons and, and doing, you know, mock battles. It's, you know, in school, it's terrible. So you have to end those programs, but I, it'll take more than that. Um, and so that's the problem. I mean, if we look back in the last 30 years uh, of what's happened in Russia since the Soviet collapse, um, you know, it wasn't possible, I mean, depending on the age of the person and their inclinations to somehow rid them of habits and things that they'd learned uh, in that period. So it would take a major effort. And I mean, it's, it's part of a broader problem. Um, one of the themes at this Leonard Mary conference is, and it, it was the Estonian prime minister who, who makes this point very eloquently, Russia has never been, and the Soviet Union too, never been held accountable uh, for many of the atrocities it's committed. And you go back to World War II, we can talk about the Katyn massacres, we can talk about the occupation of the Baltic states and deportation of people, and a lot of other things. I'm not gonna list them all now, Chechnya. So uh, 
if you really want to, to cleanse society of these things, you have to do what the Germans did under duress, which is to confront your past and really sincerely try and overcome it. And again, uh, Russia seems has not been held accountable for that. Yeah, I mean, I'll note, just to add, add one thing on this, as someone who wrote a book about the legacies of communism on attitudes among um, citizens in post-communist countries towards democracies, markets, social welfare, gender equity, we, we actually f went into it thinking that we would find that the number of years you had lived uh, under communist rule when you were a, a child in the educational system would be the predictor of holding these attitudes. And for most of those attitudes, democracy, market, social welfare, it turned out to actually be more adult experience under these roles than it did children. So children sometimes can be malleable in some of these ways. And, and, and to me, I think this is a super, you know, super important question. Do we have any, more questions from the audience here? Yes. Oh, sorry, I keep going the wrong direction where the mic is. Sorry, I'll, I will see where you are, Elliot, next right. time and go Let's to Let's find the person farthest from the mic. I was trying to, I was on that side of the room, so I was trying to go back to this side of the room. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Eden Volkov. Um, I, uh, an econ I'm, I'm an economist, so I uh, don't think about this stuff very often, but I think it's sort of interesting. Um, it's very interesting, this discussion. Um, I had a question um, for Dr. Albots, actually. I think if I interpret your sort of comments the right way, at least what I heard was you think the sort of leverage point is the elites. Like the civil society is so weak at this point, sort of expecting anything to come from them given the repression is sort of um, too much. So we have to kind of get the elites sort of change course. Um, I wanted to know if that answer is contingent on the outcome of the war in Ukraine. So if, the, if Ukraine is lost, we lose the elites. If the war drags on forever, do we lose the elites? Um, if, you know, if we win, like, is it sort of a contingent outcome, like the, getting the elites um, to sort of put more pressure on Putin or to oust Putin? Yes, of course. I mean, you're absolutely right, you know, that, you know, the, the, uh, the, the uh, liberation of Russia is dependable upon Ukrainian success in this war. And I have no doubt that Ukraine is going to succeed in this war. Okay, near where you're standing now, <laughs> in the back corner. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, my name is Sarah Clough. I am with Freedom House. Um, and the, so I want to turn this question, um, less on what's going to happen in Russia and more on, um, what should we as, as Americans, as the, the donor class, um, ought to do. So, Following, following 2014, God, I really don't like hearing myself. This is really awkward. I'm sorry. Um, in 2014, and immediately following the um, the, the February escalation, um, many donors left the area. Um, What, what should we do as, as outside 
individuals and, and organizations? Should we wait until the war is over to re-engage with the very disparate civil society? Um, how do we make the argument that it's worth, in some cases, taxpayer dollars? Um, I hope that makes sense. Tim, as someone sure, who was engaging uh, with Soviet uh, so I'll say in the Soviet period. Two, two things uh, uh, right now. Um, there's a lot of talk about messaging and strategic messaging and how can we get it right. And I think that's important and it's useful. Um, and there's a lot more that donors, the US government can do to talk to the Russian people uh, about our intentions, about the state of the war, about the state of the world in which they live that they don't really know. However, uh, it's a much more convincing message when we have our own house in order, right? Uh, Putin, like most autocrats, loves nothing more than to point to dysfunction in the United States and say, you want democracy in your country? Well, this is what you have. Look at January 6th, right? Um, uh, uh, so if we want to make that message credible, it's really important for us uh, to get our own uh, house in order. And then Jane is absolutely right. I mean, so much of Russian civil society depends. The fate of uh, politics in Russia, the fate of civil society in Russia depends on uh, Ukraine emerging from this war uh, victorious. So if we're looking at where we put that marginal dollar, I think there's a pretty clear prescription. Anta, do you want to? No, just I think, um, I mean, I take what you say about we can't really preach something that we ourselves don't practice uh, that well. But I think we as the United States certainly could be doing a better job of trying to counter the yeah. propaganda that Russians hear. Just give them, you know, facts about what's actually happening, uh, you know, without holding ourselves up as some great example for something. For example, broadcasting yeah. back into Russia, how many yeah. Russian performers are actually uh, active in the United States? Yeah. Little Big is playing in DC next week. I mean, that is something that <laughs> most Russians probably don't know, right. or that you know, the Met is still putting on lots of mm -hmm. So, Yes, time for another question from the audience. You had a hand, yeah, sorry to go, but yeah, this time. Hi, uh, Kate Boffman, Internews Network. Um, so I have a question generally about investigative journalism and how that plays in the civil society. And I was wondering, um, to what extent has that been hollowed out even among independent media that are still either in the country or uh, speaking to folks that are in the country? Um, and you know, for those that continue to do it, uh, what is the motivation and even the strategies that they have to continue? There are no independent media in the country. 300 different publications and websites were closed since the war started. Another approximately 3,000 different internet-based resources were shut down. Uh, so in order to get access to those publications or those internet resources, you need VPN, however, virtual private network. However, it's also true that Russia became the second biggest nation in the world downloading uh, VPNs. So people, everyone I know, 
uh, in Moscow or in different cities, and I communicate with people, you know, from Moscow to Irkutsk and Khabarovsk, they use VPN in order to uh, have the possibility to to get information from the web. Investigative journalism does exist in uh, Russian diasporas abroad. You know, all major, uh, uh, all major investigative journalist networks, all they, all they immigrate. They are now either in Vilnius, Lithuania, or in Riga, Latvia, some in Berlin, Germany. And of course, you know, uh, Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption foundation, which became the, you know, the, the champion of investigative uh, journalism, uh, is also keep doing their uh, research. However, you know, answering the previous question, I want also to point out to some practical things uh, that I think it's important to keep in mind. Uh, it is that uh, uh, if we, want, we need to save those who are capable to uh, start rebuilding Russia the minute it will, it will become pos possible. That's why I think that it's in the, uh, that's the power of the civil society in the United States and its government to uh, save people like Alexei Navalny, Ilya Yashin, Vladimir Kromuza, and other political prisoners who are sitting in jails. At least it should be uh, mentioned in, uh, in the American media, which are mostly silent about that. Secondary, a lot of those million Russians who left uh, uh, Russia right after the war started, you know, many of them, they have problems with their documents. There is a huge necessity just to help them to, and they should be established something like nonsense passport that was uh, created for uh, white Russians, for white Russian immigration of uh, 1917, 1920, when people, you know, fail to have any uh, proper passports. The same problem exists for the current Russian immigration now. Their passports expire, they, so some countries just kick them out like Georgia because they're afraid of the pressure from the side of uh, Putin's. And so it is, it is a problem, you know. We, it, it's, uh, it's not just a problem that many of them may not return. I do believe that many of them, especially, you know, in my circles, in my line of work, will go back the minute it will become possible. And, uh, but they really experience a lot of just everyday uh, problems. So I think that, you know, for the uh, uh, organization like a Freedom House, you know, there is plenty of things that can be done. And third thing that I think feel very important to say, that please don't treat all Russians as Nazi. As Yashin wrote in his Globe and Mail, uh, opinion column. Yes, Russia, uh, the, the country got uh, uh, hijacked by uh, the government of thieves and killers, but not all Russians are thieves and killers. Not uh, all Russians are, are in favor of this war. And please, you know, this is, is, this is awful sometimes to read that Russians are treated uh, in a rhetoric that was used uh, by some of most, you know, dark uh, elements uh, in the European history. Thank you.
Thanks, Anya. Um, we're almost at time. We started a couple minutes late, so we'll go a couple, just a couple minutes more, but I want to give uh, Tim and Angela an opportunity to offer some closing thoughts. Is there anything about Russian civil, civil society you haven't had a chance to talk about yet now? The current state, future state. We have a question from the from the audience from the virtual audience that we don't really have time to get into because it's a big question, but about the role of of civil society outside of Russia versus civil society inside of Russia. But I want to give you two a chance for some closing thoughts. Angela? Well, just that, you know, um, Again, hopefully the war will be over sooner rather than later. Um, people who have left Russia will come back and that civil society and that there will be a government in power that will allow civil society at least to reassert itself in some way. Um, uh, because otherwise, you know, the, the future would be pretty grim. Someone, that's what I would hope for. <laughs> Yeah, two quick thoughts. Um, autocrats tend to be replaced by other autocrats. That's the bad news. Um, uh, particularly personalist autocrats like Putin tend to be replaced by other uh, personalist autocrats. On the other hand, uh, uh, you know, Russia is not just any other, any old autocracy. You know, it's wealthier, it's better educated, it's more urban. So it does have some of the, the fundamental building blocks of, uh, uh, you know, what a civil society uh, could look like. Also, I don't think we should. Um, uh, a fetishize the term civil society as if it's all good things. Uh, you know, there are parts of civil society that are helpful for democracy and some uh, uh, that are not. And it's a very, you know, uh, if we look at, say, Latin American democracies, often civil societies there are quite weak, even though the political processes are competitive uh, and their political systems are open and the media uh, is free. On that optimistic note, I think, um, I, let me just say how much, having run a lot of these um, types of discussions virtually uh, in the past 15 months, just how much of a pleasure it is to be able to do this in person and to share the stage with my uh, friends and panelists here. And this has just been enormously uh, illuminating to me. I hope you found it as well. And please join me in thanking our panelists for taking the time with us today. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.